Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today, we want to discuss special populations that we may see in the operating room. Two specifically, we want to talk about geriatric patients and then obesity patients. And basically what differences from a general standpoint that we're going to have with those two patient populations and how that's going to change our anesthesia care and the plan that we do approaching the care of these patients during the procedure. So Tanner, you just want to start us off here with geriatric patients and how we're going to assess them preoperatively before we start the case. A really good preoperative assessment is going to be necessary because there's going to be such differences between people within the same population. So you might have somebody who is really active and you might have somebody who is very frail and how you manage those patients is going to be very different. The first thing you want to look at is the functional status. We talked more in depth about this in our preoperative assessment discussion, but your mortality will decrease around 10% for every MET that you go up. And so if you remember what a MET is, it's a metabolic equivalent. So it equates to 3.5 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. So what we're doing with these METs is we want to look at basically what they're able to do, what their functional status is, that correlates to a specific MET. And then that MET will give us a total oxygen consumption. So at the very low end of the spectrum, one is just like getting dressed, cooking, things like that. Four is really the met that we're looking for. That is when they're able to walk up flights of stairs without stopping or walk up one to two blocks up a hill, working outside. It goes all the way up to like 10 is where you're doing strenuous activity, exercises, sports, that type of thing. Preoperatively, you need to have a good understanding of what your patient's functional ability is. And again, that will play into how you manage them with their respiratory and cardiovascular status. Yeah. So as Tanner was saying, the reason it's important that we do this preoperative assessment in terms of the functional status of these patients is just simply because as they age, you can have such a a difference here in the functional ability of these patients. I have a grandpa on one side of my family who can hardly walk to the mailbox and back without getting fatigued. And I have another one that runs four or five miles every day. So just because you're you're elderly doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have this decrease in functional status, but it's important to figure out where they're at so that we don't group them in a certain category when they're not. So for an example here, let's say we are doing our pre-op assessment on a 85 year old gentleman and he says that he can go on two mile walks every day. Well, so we're going to give that patient a med of around four. And so as Tanner was saying, in order to figure out the oxygen consumption of this patient, you're going to take 3.5 milliliters of oxygen per every met. So we're going to times that by four mets. And then we're going to times that by how many kilograms he is. So let's say he weighs 70 kilograms, then you're going to get four mets times 3.5 times 70. And that's about 980 milliliters of oxygen per minute that this guy is consuming at that functional status. So if you ever get a question like that, that's how you determine it. And as Tanner was saying, we want high mets, at least a four or above to decrease the cardiovascular risks that can occur with these patients. And these geriatric patients are at risk for more cardiovascular effects, mainly because as they age, the arteries and the veins, the vessels there become more stiff and they lose elastin. Basically, this results in a decreased compliance of these vessels. Let's think about this here. You have volume getting pumped out from the blood into the arteries. And what normally would happen is the arteries would have good compliance, meaning that they would be able to 
accommodate that extra volume of fluid being rushed into them. And then they come back to normal size after that blood goes through. And so it's very compliant. It stretches and comes back. Well, as these vessels become stiffer and they decrease their ability to have that elastic reshaping after the blood has gone through them, it's going to increase your systemic vascular resistance. And so you're going to have an increase in this blood pressure and an increase in pulse pressure as a result from it. And obviously, when you're talking about a chronic elevation in your afterload, or in blood pressure, it's going to cause your left ventricle to basically have hypertrophy that develops and can lead to heart failure. You basically will have a diastolic heart dysfunction due to a increased ventricular pressure when you have all this blood filling in the ventricle because they already have hypertrophy and wall stiffness in the ventricles. So as you can imagine, then if you have all this stiffness, it's going to decrease the amount of stroke volume that these patients are going to be able to pump out. Additionally, with cardiovascular effects you're going to see here is as they age, they're going to have some fibrosis occur in the conduction system of the heart. And so as a result, they're going to be at increased risk for dysrhythmias to develop. And the big thing that I saw here is that they are not as responsive to catecholamines. So as these patients age, we decrease our ability or our sensitivity to respond to catecholamines. As a result here, we're going to see more catecholamines circulating in these patients, but you're not going to have as much of an effect so at the heart, they're going to have this decreased sensitivity, but you're going to have higher elevated levels of norepi and epinephrine trying to stimulate the beta receptors at the heart. So the SNS tone at the systemic level will be increased, but at the heart, you're going to have a decreased response to it. And as a result, you're going to have a decreased cardiac output because of it. And then lastly, with the cardiovascular system, geriatric patients have a decreased responsiveness on their baroreceptors. So they're more likely to have this orthostatic hypotensive picture without a reflex tachycardia. So basically, fluctuations in blood pressure are not going to come back and have reflex in their heart rate, either bradycardia or tachycardia, simply because, like I said before, one, their baroreceptors are less responsive, and then two, they're not as responsive to catecholamines. So they're not going to be able to have that tachycardia picture that you would normally see in a patient that all of a sudden becomes hypotensive. Moving on from cardiac into the respiratory system, what are some changes we're going to see here? Similarly to cardiovascular, when you lose the elastin, what does that look like for your lungs? So compliance, remember, is the ability for the lungs to expand. And then your elasticity is the ability for your lungs to snap back or go back to kind of the starting position. So think of this like a balloon versus a bag. So if you are blowing up a balloon, it's going to be harder to fill. And then as soon as you stop putting air into the balloon, it's going to release all of the air because of that snapback. Well, if you do that to like a paper bag, you can blow air in easily, but there's no snapback. The air just kind of sits there. So think, think of it like that when you're thinking of this loss of elastin. The compliance is really good. You're able to fill the lungs but your snapback is really decreased as they age because of this loss of elastin. What does this mean for your lung volumes? This is a little bit deceiving because while your compliance is increased, your actual chest wall movement is decreased because of just fibrosis in the joints and things like that as you age. And so while the actual lung compliance is increased, chest wall is a little stiffer. And so overall, it still is difficult to bring in those volumes. So first let's talk about these different volumes. The inspiratory reserve volume is the max amount of air that you can bring in in a single breath. Your tidal volume is what you're going to be bringing in and expiring on a normal breath. You have your expiratory reserve volume, which is after normal breath, the additional air that you can blow out. 
So on a normal breath, you finish your breath and then you can still breathe out a little more air. That's your expiratory reserve volume. And then you have your residual volume, which is the air that you will never be able to breathe out. And that is what stays in your lungs. Your FRC is made up of your expiratory reserve volume and your residual volume. So your expiratory reserve volume is the amount, again, that you can blow out after a normal breath. And then your residual volume is the volume of air that you can never breathe out, just stays in your lungs. Inspiratory capacity is going to be your tidal volume plus your inspiratory reserve volume. So that's the total amount of air that you can breathe in. Your vital capacity is going to be everything that you can control. So that's going to be everything except for your residual volume. And then your total lung capacity obviously is going to be everything. So that's going to include your residual volume, expiratory reserve volume, tidal volume, and your inspiratory reserve volume. So now let's talk about what this means for our geriatric population. Overall, your FRC, your functional reserve capacity, is going to increase. So this at first doesn't make sense. You would think it would decrease thinking about the things that we've already talked about. But the reason that your FRC increases is because, again, it's made up of your residual volume and your excitatory reserve volume. Well, what have we talked about? Your lungs do not have the snapback that they should have. And so your residual volume, that air that you can't breathe out, is going to increase. It's going to increase so much that it's going to basically like override the decrease in your extra reserve volume. And so overall, you're going to have an increased FRC due to the residual volume being increased so much. Your vital capacity that is going to be decreased due to decreased muscle strength and increased wall stiffness. So again, like I said, you have increased compliance of the actual lungs, but your chest wall is going to be more fibrotic and more stiff, which is going to overall decrease your vital capacity. FEV1 and FEV are going to be reduced. This makes sense because you're not able to breathe that air out quickly. Again, this is all related to the decrease in snapback and loss of elastin. Closing capacity is basically the volume at which your small airways will start to close. And so with these older patients, their closing capacity will increase, which means they have more volume in their lungs while their small airways are collapsing, which basically just increases the amount of dead space. And so this can make the patient at risk for hypoxia. You'll have VQ mismatching. And this is all due to that dead space there in the alveolar tissue. And lastly, their sensitivity to chemoreceptors is going to be decreased. We think specifically here about your CO2. And so you might need to have them on CPAP or BiPAP in the perioperative setting, just because when you have these different drugs that may be impairing their respiratory drive, they may already be impaired slightly due to the decreased responsiveness to these chemoreceptors. So again, you might just need to give them more respiratory support in the perioperative setting. Perfect. The two main organ systems I feel like we always talk about with any special consideration is going to be respiratory and cardiovascular. But let's also talk about the liver and kidneys as well here. The liver, as you age, is going to have a decrease in blood flow. And you're also going to see the liver produce less of its enzymes and proteins that we use in the body, such as albumin or pseudocholinesterase, I think are the two big ones. And albumin especially being decreased is important because it will have a decreased 
unconic drive to pull the water into the vascular space to keep the blood pressure high. The other thing with albumin being low is that we'll have less proteins in the vascular space to have our drugs bind to. So you're going to have more drug in the free form able to cause an effect. So you will have some shifting in the dosage that will be required for patients that have a decreased albumin level. And then with the pseudocholinesterase from our neuromuscular blocker talk, it breaks down the succinylcholine. So if you have a decreased pseudocholinesterase, then it's going to shift the amount of succinylcholine needed to block the muscle for a patient. Additionally, let's talk about your kidneys here. So your kidneys, as you age, you're going to have a decrease in your glomerular filtration rate. So glomerular filtration rate is basically the amount of blood that we can filter and filtrate at that glomerular sac. Normally, it's around 125 mils a minute. Well, we decrease as we age, and so we're going to be at an increased risk here for either A, fluid overload, simply because we're not filtering out as much into urine. Additionally, you're going to be at risk for drug overdosing because you're not going to be able to eliminate that drug as fast. So in the GFR, partially is decreased as well here, simply because you have a decrease in renal blood flow. So if we're not getting as much blood to the kidneys, we're not going to be able to filter as much out as well, which will aid to the fact that we're going to have an increased risk for fluid overload and then also drug overdosing. The big thing I want to talk with kidneys is the idea of creatinine levels. So the big thing here is when you're testing for kidney failure in these patients, oftentimes we use creatinine as a indicator of how poor the kidney function is. Well, in the elderly, because you have a decreased GFR, you would think that you're going to have an increase in your serum creatinine level. That's not necessarily the case. The serum level actually stays normal in a normal geriatric patient. Obviously different here if you have a kidney failure patient, but simply from being a geriatric patient is not going to increase your serum creatinine level. And that's because their muscle mass decreases and creatinine is a byproduct here of muscle metabolism. So due to the decreased amount of creatinine being made, but also a decreased filtering in your glomerular sac, you're going to kind of level out the playing field here and just stay normal for your serum level. So that's important to note is really, if you're trying to monitor the kidney function here in a geriatric patient, don't use the serum level. It'd be better to use the creatinine clearance, which is the ability of the kidneys to actually filter it out and excrete it. Let's wrap up the geriatric portion of this talk with just talking about some miscellaneous things that you need to consider. So first of all, remember that MAC will decrease with age. If you remember back from our inhalational discussion, MAC is the minimum alveolar concentration that you need to achieve your sedation. And so if that decreases, that means you'll need less volatile anesthetics. If you're doing regional anesthesia, remember that the CSF volume decreases with age. So remember your intrathecal anesthetic will have more spread and they will also have increased sensitivity to the drugs because of their decreased myelinated nerves. You need to understand that there is less space between the spinous processes and also there's risk for more calcifications and things like that. So your neuroaxial anesthesia may be more difficult. So you may need to use ultrasound Cole mentioned this when he was talking about the cardiac side of things, but they have a decrease in sensitivity to catecholamines. And so it's going to be more difficult if you're doing just like an epidose to test. That test is not going to be as sensitive, again, because they have decreased sensitivity to the catecholamines. Their decreased cardiac output will cause an increase in their IV induction time. Keep in mind that decreased cardiac output will also be one of the reasons that you'll need a lower MAC for these patients. 
And then lastly, there's been some discussion about EKGs for geriatric patients. This is not really supported by literature, so just follow your facility's guidelines. But just because they're in an advanced age does not mean that you necessarily need to get an EKG prior to surgery. All right, so that pretty much wraps us up with what we want to discuss today on geriatric side of things. Let's now move into obesity. Basically, the main thing I want you to understand with obesity is the increase in adipose tissue. Think of it as a, for the most part, metabolically active organ, meaning it's going to require more oxygen consumption and more CO2 production. If you understand that, hopefully it'll make sense as we move through the pathophys of what can happen in an obese patient. So obviously, obese patients have an increased amount of adipose tissue. This can become dangerous for several reasons. The big one that most people think of initially is insulin resistance. So type 2 diabetes, a lot of patients that are obese also have type 2 diabetes, so that makes sense. You're also at risk for inflammation, and you can also have some cardiovascular effects, which we'll get into here in a second. But first, let's break down how we categorize the classes of obesity. So we use BMI. BMI is the weight in kilograms divided by the height in meters squared. And this is just a tool. It doesn't accurately measure the amount of adipose tissue because let's say you have a a heavy bodybuilder that has a lot of muscle mass. It doesn't necessarily differentiate between muscle and fat. So just keep in mind that BMI is just a tool. It's not a perfect indicator. But how we break down BMI, the normal BMI that you want is going to be 18.5 to 24.9. If you're below 18.5, you're considered underweight. Anything above is considered overweight. Once you get above 25, so 25 to 30 is going to be just overweight. 30 to 35 is going to be obese class 1. 35 to 40 is class 2. And above 40 is going to be class 3. If you're over 50, you're considered super obese. And if you're above 60, you're considered super, super obese. In terms of fat distributions, there's two main ones that we want to talk about. There's gynecoid and android. So gynecoid is more of a pear shape. So think about how the the patient's chest down in their abdomen is going to be a little narrower. And then as you get into the hip region, it's going to kind of fan out, kind of like a pear, how it's narrow and then fans out at the bottom. It's not as much of a central location in adipose tissue, but it's more down around the hips and the upper legs. The nice thing here is, like I said before, adipose tissue, I want you to think is metabolically active and requires more oxygen consumption and more energy usage. But actually this distribution of fat is not as metabolically active as the android obesity I'm gonna talk about in a second. So think gynecoid is the better. So if your patient has more buildup around the hips and the upper thighs, that's better than the android obesity, which is more of an apple shape. So this is more in the torso region, and you're going to have the adipose tissue build up around that area. And this is worse because it's going to be an increased risk of insulin resistance, elevated blood pressures. You're going to have some chronic hypertension in these patients, a lot higher risk of heart disease, which again, we'll get into here in a little bit. And that's mainly because these are really metabolically active tissue formations. So think if you're going to have one or the other, gynecoid is the better one to have than android. You don't want that apple shape. And the reason I I want to talk about these, these different ones is we can use a couple different risk factors to determine how much at risk for these negative effects, such as insulin resistance, hypertension, heart disease, cardiovascular effects during surgery, we can estimate the risk of all of those by using a couple categories here. And so we call these patients metabolic syndrome if they meet three of these criteria, at least three of them. The first one is the patient's waist. If the patient's waist circumference is above 40 centimeters in males, 30 centimeters in women, they're at risk. 
if their triglyceride level is above 150, if their fasting glucose is above 100, if their HDL is above 40 for men or 50 for women, it's another risk factor, or if their blood pressure is above 130 over 85. So again, you need at least three of those to be considered metabolic syndrome. And again, metabolic syndrome just means the patient is at an increased risk of having those side effects from obesity that we just originally talked about. Right. So just like we did with the geriatric populations, let's go through and talk about the different considerations for these patients with obesity. You have several things working in concert here that is going to place these patients at risk. First of all, you have increased blood volume, which is going to increase your cardiac output. The heart is going to work harder because of this increased workload. You can be at increased risk for ischemia. You have a risk for hypertension, which can increase your afterload. Due to your increased blood volume, you'll have increased preload. And so pushing more volume against increased afterload can lead to hypertrophy. And so you can have right-sided and left-sided hypertrophy. As you push against this increased afterload and have this increased volume, you can get diastolic dysfunction. As your diastolic function gets worse, you can eventually have systolic dysfunction as well. When we're talking about the right side of the heart, you can have pulmonary hypertension because of the increased blood volume and hypoxia. Hypoxia can be from several different things. These patients are at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. We'll talk about that when we get into the respiratory side of things. But again, you have risk for ischemia because of the increased workload. And so all of this can combine to paint a picture where you have increased workload, increased pressures, and you can have that pulmonary hypertension, which leads to the right-sided failure. Depending on the ventricular hypertrophy, You can have left or right axis deviation. So when you have EKG with these patients, you'll see several different things. You can have right or left axis uh, change. You can have low voltage, and this is mainly just due to the positioning of the leads. Due to the increased space between the leads, then you can have a low voltage reading on your EKG. So when comparing geriatric patients and obesity patients, as you can see here, both of them result in a diastolic dysfunction from the hypertrophy in the ventricle. But as Tanner was saying, geriatric patients have a decreased cardiac output and the obesity patients have an increased cardiac output originally. So it's two different mechanisms that lead here, but they do both result in this diastolic dysfunction. Moving on to the respiratory side of things, if you remember from our positioning talk, as we shift abdominal contents towards the head, you're going to have more pressure push on the lungs, and you're not going to be able to expand your lungs as well. So that's going to be seen here due to the fact that the extra adipose tissue, either A, compressing down on the lungs from the chest, or the extra adipose tissue in the abdominal region is going to be pushing cephalod and up into the lungs themselves. And basically, this is going to result in a restrictive lung picture. As a result, you're going to have vital capacity that Tanner talked about before decreasing and your total lung capacity decreasing simply because these patients are not going to be able to expand their lungs as much due to that extra pressure from the extra adipose tissue surrounding the lungs themselves. Due to the fact that all this extra adipose tissue is very metabolically active, it's going to require the lungs to have an increased minute ventilation. This is because that increased oxygen consumption is going to result in an increase in CO2 production. In order for the patient to keep their CO2 levels balanced, they're going to have to increase their minute ventilation in order to do so. Well, as I said before, their tidal volume is probably going to be decreased simply because they have that restrictive process. So they're going to be having a higher respiratory rate rather than a higher 
tidal volume in order to compensate and increase that minute ventilation. They're also going to be at risk for hypoxia simply because, like I said, they are having a increase in their metabolic activity, which is going to require an increase of oxygen consumption. Additionally here, these patients are going to have a decrease in their excretory reserve volume, which is, as Tanner talked about before, that's one of the two components that make up your FRC. So overall, you're going to have a decrease in your FRC as well. This makes sense because with the pressure pushing on the lungs, it's going to decrease the amount of volume that can fill up and increase the amount that's blown off. And so you're not going to have as much of that extra volume to breathe out after a normal breath, simply because you don't have enough that you breathe in in the first place. As Tanner talked about with closing capacity, this is also an issue in obesity, simply because as our FRC drops, your closing capacity can become above your functional residual capacity. Why is this important? Basically, if your FRC drops below the volume at which those small airways close, so that closing capacity volume, it now means that with every normal tidal breath, we're going to have small airways closing because that closing capacity is now above that functional residual capacity. As a result here, if every breath you have these small airways closing, that means you're going to increase your dead space, increase your VQ mismatch, and increase the amount of hypoxia that can occur in these patients. Yeah, so once again, don't get confused here. It sounds backwards when you say when closing capacity is greater than functional reserve capacity, then you will have those closing of the small airways. But remember, that's because the closing capacity is at higher volumes. So as the closing capacity increases, then your small airways will close sooner because it's closing off at higher volumes. So when closing capacity is greater than FRC, that means your small airways will close sooner because of your high closing capacity. Let's move on to some anesthesia considerations, specifically piggybacking off of what you just talked about, Cole, with the respiratory side of things. Let's talk about intubation for these patients. So again, a preoperative assessment is going to be very necessary. You're going to want to look at all of your standard evaluations. So you're going to look at thiomental distance. You're going to want to look at your malampati. You're going to want to look at neck circumference. These are all going to be things that are going to come into play when you are looking to intubate these patients. So like Cole mentioned, they are going to have a decreased FRC because of their decreased extra reserve volume. What this means is that they will be at risk for quick desaturation. And so you'll want to pre-oxygenate these patients well. You also need to think about because of the potential for increased neck circumference and the risk of OSA, these patients could obstruct and stop moving air pretty quickly to compound the already problem of them having decreased FRC. They could have decreased airflow quickly because of this obstruction. You should use the stop bang assessment prior to evaluate for OSA. If you don't remember, stop bang basically goes through these different risk factors, things like snoring, tiredness, pressure, BMI, age, neck circumference, male gender. If they have equal or greater than three of those things, then they're going to be at risk for OSA. They may not be diagnosed with it, but it's incumbent on you as the anesthesia provider to get a good assessment preoperatively and treat them as if they would have OSA, specifically when you're looking to do your induction. 
Next circumference is going to be your single best predictor of your problematic intubation. Again, this is because of obstruction and then also because it may be difficult to get a view if you're not able to move all of that soft tissue out of the way. So moving into the actual intubation process, there's some debate along the lines of if we need to make these patients a RSI or not. Thinking behind this is that obesity patients are an increased risk for GERD and also hiatal hernias can be there as well. And so this would put the patient at risk for the aspiration occurring during our induction and we should do a rapid sequence induction or an RSI. Studies have really shown that this isn't necessarily the case just because a patient has obesity does not mean we have to do an RSI, but it is something to put in consideration. When you're going to do the intubation, so oftentimes for we put the patient in the sniffing position, but in these patients, we wanna make sure that we're putting their head up as high as we can just to increase the amount of time that it takes for the patient to desat. So instead, we can put the patient in what's called the HELP position. This is called head elevated laryngoscopy position or HELP. Basically, you're sitting the patient up higher than you would for a normal induction just to limit the amount of reduction in FRC that can occur and maximize that amount of time before they become hypoxic. Once we get the patient intubated and we're going to be maintaining our anesthetic care, you want to put the patient at six to eight mils per ideal kilogram of body weight for your tidal volume. This is mainly because even though the patient's heavier due to the extra adipose tissue, their anatomic structure of their lungs has not changed. And then like I talked about before, we need to increase their minute ventilation simply because they're having an increase in CO2 production from all that extra metabolic activity going on in the adipose tissue. Like I said, you want to increase the respiratory rate, not necessarily the tidal volume. Again, we don't want to cause barotrauma. And also we're having all that extra pressure from the adipose tissue pushing on the lungs. So we're going to have an increased risk of barotrauma from that standpoint as well. There's also this idea of absorption atelectasis that can occur. Basically what this is, is the idea of if we're doing 100% FiO2, so a lot of oxygen is coming in to the alveolar space, and then we pull that all into the blood. Well, if all that oxygen gets pulled into the blood, now we're going to have a decreased volume in the alveolar sac and those alveolar sacs can close. As a result, they recommend using at least less than 80% if you can. If you have to use more, use it, obviously. It's better than desatting your patient. But try to use not 90 or 100% FiO2 just for that reason to prevent the amount of atelectasis that can occur. So now let's talk about some things related to some of the drugs that will give these patients. It makes sense that lipophilic drugs are going to have an increased volume of distribution just due to the increased adipose tissue. You should remember, though, that because of the increased cardiac output, your hydrophilic drugs will also be increased as well. You'll have more of an effect on the lipophilic drugs, but again, remember that your hydrophilic drugs will have increased distribution. As far as your volatile anesthetics, the increased adipose tissue will basically house your volatile anesthetics longer, and so you'll have an increased duration of action. ISO will stay in the fat the longest, so you'd want to use SIVO or DES for a quicker emergence. You should know that obesity, unlike geriatric populations, obesity does not change your MAC. When we're talking about neuroaxial anesthesia or use of opioids, you're going to have a risk for delayed respiratory depression. So be careful when you're using those that you're monitoring their respiratory status. When we're talking about drug dosing, you need to dose certain drugs based on their lean body weight. Some you'll dose based on their total body weight. You need to be sure that you have these memorized or at least be able to look them up quickly. 
For example, when you're doing an induction with propofol, you'll use your lean body weight. But when you're doing your maintenance, you'll use your total body weight. Many of these different drugs will have differences based on what you're doing, whether you're using them for induction or maintenance. You need to know what weight you're using for your medication dosing. As far as just some miscellaneous things to keep in mind, you need to use an appropriate blood pressure cuff. If your blood pressure cuff is too small for the arm, then your blood pressure will read falsely high. If you have a cuff that is too large, then you will have a blood pressure reading that is too small. Typically, that'll be more of a consideration for the geriatric population. What we mainly see here with the patients with obesity is that you have a blood pressure cuff that is too small, but just keep in mind that that blood pressure cuff needs to encircle a minimum of 75% of the upper arm circumference. Lastly, this kind of ties in back with the drugs consideration, but keep in mind that many of these patients will be on appetite suppressants. This is done by increasing your norepinephrine or serotonin by preventing their reuptake or increasing their release. And so as a result of that, your patients on these meds will be at risk for SNS overstimulation or hypertension during these surgeries. So kind of like when we're talking about, I mean, it's different, but think about like a pheochromocytoma when you're dealing with these increased catecholamines. Here, we're talking about norepinephrine and serotonin specifically, but keep in mind that their drug history may have specific implications for how you manage these patients and they may be at risk for this SNS overstimulation. Great. So that pretty much wraps us up on the two different patient populations, geriatric and obesity. And the big thing I hear that I want you to understand going into taking care of these patients is the idea of the cardiovascular changes and the respiratory changes. Those are the two big ones. So basically, which one's going to have an increased cardiac output? Which one's going to have a decreased cardiac output? Are we at risk for diastolic dysfunction? It's important to note that this is a general description of these two categories. And so just because a patient comes in and has a BMI of 45, doesn't mean that they're going to simply have all these changes that we talked about for obesity. But you need to understand that when you have a patient that does have an elevated BMI come in, you should have these flags in your head going off on how that's going to affect the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system from a general standpoint. Same thing goes for the elderly. Don't necessarily assume that a 90-year-old that comes in is going to have an altered mental status or is going to have a certain respiratory dysfunction. But again, we need to understand that in a general concept, this is what's going to occur as you age. So hopefully that all makes sense, helps differentiate the, the changes that we'll see in these two patient populations and that we can better take care of these patients in the operating room.